Oh my god. Did you know that Diversify has an email address? I know, right? What? Let us know what you thought of each episode at ourteamq at gmail.com. And why not tell us what topics you'd like to see us cover next? Go on. Make us feel like we're not just shouting into the ether. You know you want to. Turn out the light. Open the curtains. Go and do useful things you win. No, I said it. Diversify. I am Holly. And I'm Kate. And we are here today with the wonderful... Daniel York. A fantastic actor and, we have just learnt, fantastic musician as well. No. We'll be talking <laughs> to him about why representation matters, uh, specifically a bit about the erasure of Asian culture and kind of how that's hopefully starting to change. Me and Kate are two very white women. Very white women. So we will be <laughs> asking the stupid questions so that you guys don't have to because it is your responsibility to educate yourselves and we want to help with that. She will be asking the I will be asking the stupid questions. And I will be pretending I'm woke. <laughs> <laughs> we're all pretending we're woke, don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the word woke is pretending yeah. it's woke. Yeah, yeah, no, completely, yeah. <laughs> So Daniel, tell us a little bit about what you do, a bit about your career, but actually um, a bit about your activism. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been an actor for, uh, since the 90s, really. Is that before you were born, Holly? I don't, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, was, nearly. I was born in 1991, okay, contrary to okay. how young my face You're looked. a lot no, no. younger than I thought you were. I should know this, I've known you for years. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a compliment. Yeah. She looks about 12, just for people who can't see her right now. <laughs> um, so I was an actor and uh, I, I did quite well early on. I, I mean, when I came out of drama school, there was literally nothing. And then, and then a little spate of, uh, I did a play called Porcelain, which was considered quite seminal at the time. It was about a gay Chinese boy who shoots his lover in a bathtub green toilet. It was, you know, it was hard hitting, edgy stuff. It was like, it was queued around the block for it and all this kind of wow. stuff. Massive nine foot poster of me outside the fit. You know, my ego was obviously in orbit, basically. And I thought, this is it, and then I was at the Royal Shakespeare Company after that, and then I kind of, it's just, it's just been kind of hell ever since. So the last few years have been a lot better, obviously, but you know, you, you sort of do that, that kind of high-level theatre work, and then you, you come out and you audition for literally Mr. Chow in, in Holby City, and Mr. Chow has three lines, and Mr. Chow can't speak English properly, and you know, there's something deeply kind of enervating about that, and I, I think it probably got to its peak around about 2008, and... Uh, that's something that we're only starting to talk about now. Take the big thing about The Simpsons at the moment. Uh, was it Harry Kondavali, The Problem with the Poo? Or, uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And where do you stand in terms of accents? Would you do an accent or yeah. would you literally be like, no, that's not me? Um, I, I, do, I do accents, but I mean, it's so generic. When you're talking, I mean, you ask for a Chinese accent. What they mean is, can you sound like the kids in the playground used to sound when they were taking the piss out of you? Which doesn't actually resemble how Chinese people it's talk. So many actually. different accents as well. Well, well, there, there, there is. I mean, you, you, you're talking about basically like I don't know, it's a third or a quarter of the world's population from a vast geographical area. You know what I mean? You're taking all the diaspora as well, and, and you're, you're, what you're imitating is someone who's. First language is in English as well, sometimes. A lot of the time, generally that's what I'm asking you to imitate. So it goes beyond an accent, really. and So so you do it, and you do it kind of authentically, and they're, they're kind of like a bit baffled by that, and they don't really know 
So, so you have, um, I mean, I mean, TV's a death zone for East Asians. It's just horrendous. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, I got a friend, uh, an active friend of mine in Malaysia, uh, who is uh, like me, he's half Chinese. And so he's got family here. So he comes here sometimes and he says, whenever I see a Chinese person on British TV, he says, no one resembles any Chinese person I've ever met in my life. And it's kind of true. You, you're, you're, you're basically being asked to embody uh, a racial signifier, a racial trope. And, and if you go in there and you're not, kind of that immediately to them they get very very suspicious and almost aggressive about you and um, I mean, there are people who make quite a decent living out of that I, I don't know they never call it out and I don't I don't really know you know and I said these things before in interviews and, and you get this headline Daniel York's refused to adhere to stereotypes you know that's very flattering to my ego but the truth of the matter is probably I, I wasn't really able to embody that stereotype terribly well because I am mixed race because I've grown up here all my life because I have a certain I don't know British sensibility, I suppose. It's difficult for me to kind of do that to that extent. I mean, I do voiceovers a lot with various East Asian accents and um, it's very convincing. I've travelled, I've worked a lot in Asia, um, but I I don't do those kids in the playground Chinese accents, no. I've got a lot of female East Asian actor friends who are struggling at the moment between whether they should accept work that is of a certain stereotype yeah. in order to work, because we're all actors. Well, we're not all actors, obviously. Many people are not actors, but actors are all actors. Yeah. And they want to work. Yeah. And it sounds like a really difficult sort of balance to find, especially for young graduates or... Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, I think especially for young young women as well. I mean, you've got, you got a thing on TV that, that basically East Asian males don't really exist beyond kind of brutalist, monosyllabic, heavily accented, kind of just non-entities really. Whereas what you get with East Asian women, it's pressure to be overtly sexy, I think. Yeah. Overtly sexually available as well. Yeah. You know, very often overtly kind of sexy, but also sexually submissive. Submissive, yeah. Submissive. In fact, there's a big thing, it's very strange, sorry to cut you off. Right. The white supremacist movement, disclaimer, I am not part of the white supremacist movement. No. I am fiercely yeah. left-wing and anti-racist, but I know that there's a thing going on at the moment where they're genuinely having a discussion about whether Asian people pass as white. Yeah, and that seems to me steeped in the fetishization of that culture. Yeah, completely. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm very aware of that concept. And you, you, you do have, I'm afraid, East Asian boys and girls who pander to that. But the thing is, if you're asking if someone's really white, then it's obviously not really white. So yeah, you can yeah. you can do this thing where yeah, I'm going to get with white people, but you you, you know you're always going to be slightly second class. So you can get with them, but I mean you know that's what you are. There's a guy online who calls it the um, the palace eunuchs and the concubines. That's that's Ooh. effectively what you are. And there's a whole thing about the um, do you know about the, the the model minority ethos? You know. Yeah. Well, I mean the the model minority thing, and, it, and it's been huge in the East Asian theatre acting community. It's been huge. I, I would suggest that before 2012, that is exactly what happened. You know, most of us pandered to that notion where you're the ones that don't <coughs> cause too much trouble, and you're the ones that try and peel off on your own. So hold the rest down there, do you know what I'm saying? And we call it being a peak integration Asian, actually. It's, it's like you're the most developed Asian. So you, you get a girl or a boy, say, who, who is the nominated East Asian actor in their generation, do you know what I mean? And, and there is always one. So they get all the parts, and all, all those terrible parts, you know. 
with with those silly accents and and they're they're saying well i you know i'm i'm obviously i'm i'm the most developed you know and they'll sit there with their white people friends and the white friends say not very many of you are there little orientals and they'll and, you, and, and you'll turn around and you'll say ah oh, yeah yeah i mean there'll be a few more coming through in time like they'll they'll develop along the kind of anthropological scale to be as as integrated as me i guess that's what they're saying i, I think you know so yeah, that's a really unfortunate thing. I, I think especially East Asian women, there's a certain kind of white supremacist fetishization about the fact that, you know, you, you know like, like they'll say, yeah, come in and be white with us, but what you've done has been colonised, I think. Yeah. The interesting thing, I think, with that whole model minority thing, that often means erasure because you're honorary white, but then when we say Bain, which for listeners who don't know is black and minority ethnic yeah. which in itself is so problematic and kind of proves the point i'm about to or the question that i'm about to open out black is the standard when yeah. people say oh but we're diverse we've got a black guy we've mm. got a black woman mm. and part of that is fantastic because particularly black people have been very oppressed but at the same time i do find it means that any other minority is completely just not yeah, represented yeah. at all how do you feel about that and how do you feel about how we rectify that and talk to the white community and the black community and just kind of open it up for everybody well he will, you know yeah you're right it becomes very binary because that's simpler for you know, the white establishment gatekeepers is simpler for them to deal with. They think, well, I've just got to find two or three black people for every 15 white people. That's kind of easier for them to deal with. Diversity is diverse. It gets really complicated. It's a headache for them. And I understand. I understand that completely. But, yeah, it's much easier to do that kind of binary thing. And I think what happened was, you know, when you say diversity, people think black people. And then they think South Asians. And East Asians weren't really in the mix, like I say, till 2012. I think they think paperwork. Yeah, yeah, totally. Which yeah. shouldn't be a thing, but even if it is a thing, should be a joyous thing because you're finding new people. Well, well, you you think so? Um, I don't want to discuss the directors too much. I mean, I, I don't work as one; it's not how I earn my living. But I mean, it, it... they can only cast what they've been told. To well, cast. I, I have to say because I've been in a lot of those discussions uh, with, with people on behalf of Equity and on behalf of British East Asian artists and stuff, and. The buck gets passed a lot. And the casting directors say, well, I can't, you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's the producers, and the producers say, well, we can only cast the people. It's the writers, you know what I mean? And the directors say, well, I can only cast people put in front of me, do you know what I mean? But there's a certain career progression path, which I think, you know, white middle-class people have, which is going to do theatre at Chichester and places and the Royal Shakespeare Company or whatever, and then you do a fancy period drama on TV, mm. and the, you know, the best written, most expensive dramas, the most nuanced characters. Like Hollywood. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. That, 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 that all looks good. And then you, that kind of career path is not really open to East Asians. It's difficult because what happens a lot is people think you're saying there's no work for East Asian actors. There's a lot. There's a lot for the wrong type of person doing the wrong type of stuff, in my humble opinion. And just to add to that, I think it's really, really important, um, maybe not to everyone that's listening to this conversation, but to actors, especially white actors. I think we all have to learn at some point. Yeah. We all have to be corrected at some point in order to know that we need to educate ourselves and we need to understand better. And I think most of the time, the point where that tips and you start to get it, at least for me it was, um, luckily a while ago, is when you realise that it's not about how much work your BAME actor friend is getting in comparison to you, it's about what's being seen in the media, on the television yeah. and representation yeah. and yeah. everything that that embodies. 
I think that's a very, very big difference. It's yeah. not about how much work you're getting. It's about what picture, is being right? done with it and wow. the bigger picture. Yeah. So we are both actors, but we're hoping that a lot of people who listen to this podcast aren't actors. So beyond the business itself and employing more East Asian actors, more gay actors, more trans yeah. actors, yeah, 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 yeah. women, what actually ends up going out into the world as representation? You were saying you grew up. Um, with almost no representation mm. and that which was there was very, very either generic or negative or just stereotypical. If you had to just kind of say what the importance of seeing diversity on yeah. the screen is for you, what would you say? Well, I, I mean, on a very basic level, apparently, I mean, there was a survey last year and apparently the, the, the Chinese community reports the, the, the highest amount of racial abuse. It's probably also the highest amount of unreported. I think that would surprise most people. But if you think a lot of Chinese people work in catering outlets late at night, and um, you know, there's an awful lot of that goes on. I mean, I worked in a pizza shop when I was unemployed years ago, and, and you know, Saturday night there, there's a lot of hassle. So if you're a little Chinese family in the middle of nowhere, you're going to you're going to cop all that. Um, but I mean, I you know, I think I think Islamophobia is probably the top thing at the moment. But I mean, there is definitely a sense that East Asian people just don't really matter. They don't really have feelings. They don't really uh, figure. They're, they're just kind of like, it's like the far right get out of their prams about Muslim sex grooming gangs, but they never thought about you know sex pat tourism going on in East Asia, Southeast Asia. They haven't thought about how many white grooming gangs no 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 no. But I mean, it, it's basically open season in Asia and Africa and you know Southeast Asia. I mean, I. I'm half Chinese, I have this thing, and I have passing white privilege apparently, and I've sat there with groups of white men, listened to them talking about going to Thailand, listened to the things they talk about, and it's just literally a joke to them. It's like the, the, the idea of bagging off with a 15-year-old hooker, you know, you wouldn't do that here. But out there, it's just not the same. There's, there's a kind of weird no-rules thing that operates, and it, if you're not humanised, people don't... Um... Well, I'll give you an example. I mean, I, I watched, a, there's a film called Blood... Diamond, I think, is with, with Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. DiCaprio. Yeah, and there's there's this extraordinary sequence where they're driving through this village in the, in this jeep. Leo's driving, and they're getting shot at, and there's this big civil war going on, and people dying left, right, and centre. It goes on for ages, brilliantly, brilliantly filmed and and brilliantly staged. And get to the end of it, five minutes, you feel the old order is going. Oh, thank God, Leo's all right. <laughs> yeah. There's about you know, there's about fifty dead black people. No one cared. I think that a lot in these big movies, yeah. like. <laughs> Taken, Liam Neeson. Is it Liam Neeson? Yeah. He like kills everyone in Paris. Uh, he like destroys the entire city. But I think that is a problem in Hollywood and again with representation because like our heroes of the stage and screen, they can kill anyone they like. Can I just can I just go off on a, a, a tiny tangent here? Yeah. I watched the worst movie of my entire movie watching life the other day. <laughs> oh, this is good. It was called bollocks what's it called it was london has fallen okay? oh yeah yeah, yeah oh yeah. my god gerard butler yeah gerard yeah. Butler, yeah i mean there were so many things wrong i could tell you like oh, somehow no. the british armed forces managed to allow every single person at this huge brigade going all the way across yeah. london to be a double agent and everyone was shooting each other basically by the end of it everyone's dead hashtag spoiler alert. <laughs> um, no honestly no it's not gonna ruin it no. for you no and that one of the lines was uh they have decimated most of the known london landmarks which i just won't even go into but at the end at least the president's okay like yeah. he's the only person yeah, left yeah, alive it was just oh it's a but funny it's thing. that whole thing particularly in this country class 
as well as race, race and class, Huge and thing. all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The masses, the faceless masses. But at least it wasn't, you know, the one that I've heard of who died, or at least it wasn't my yeah, family. Yeah, yeah, no, no. But if, if it's your family who I've never seen before mm. and you live in Africa or Malaysia no, 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 or whatever. It's just not, you know, it's just not important. So, so that there's a thing where you essentially dehumanise people by rendering them invisible and faceless and just not having personalities, not having lives, hopes, aspirations and dreams. You know, and there's, there's so many situations now. I was part of a whole video campaign last week for Amnesty International for this uh, poet called Lo Xia who's uh, detained under house arrest in China because her husband, Liu Xiaobo, was, uh, was a Chinese dissident who got locked up for editing a petition calling for human rights in China. And he died last year, the first Nobel Prize Prize winner to die in captivity since World War II. So Lo has been under house arrest for eight years, never been convicted of a single crime. So we kind of like did this video campaign with Amnesty National for doing her poems, you know, with, with some quite really well-known people. But it's just interesting, I just think the lives of Chinese dissidents don't matter, the lives of Chinese people don't matter. They're just kind of expendable cannon fodder, really. And, and um, you know, someone asked me the other day, well, like, well like, what's your general, you know, what's your goal as an actor, as a writer, or whatever, and I, you know, it's, it's that kind of humanization, really. There's a real problem we have actually coming through. If you look, there's always one or two young East Asian girls trying to be actors. There's very few young East Asian males. You think, why is that? Because they turn on the TV. Is there any, do they see anything that would inspire them to be an actor at all? You know, occasionally you see an East Asian male and you think, well, me as a 15-year-old kid, is that going to make you think, well, I want to, I want to do that? I don't know. Yeah. That's another way of looking at it. Because we were talking about this pie chart, which Holly concocted. Which I did a little picture of it, but it just looks like Pac-Man eating a pizza. Uh -huh. um, but yeah. So we were talking about this pie chart. I will put it up on Instagram. I was thinking about this when I, I was working in a the theatre the other day. I was watching some rehearsals and fantastically diverse cast, yeah. okay? Some differently abled people, yeah. um, some BAME artists. About six BAME or differently abled, all female. Yeah. And then I think one or two black guys and then the rest white men, yeah. one white woman. And I thought it was fantastic and I can't knock it and you can't knock people for being that good. But at the same time, I just remember thinking like, so the pie chart's gotten a tiny bit bigger, the, yeah. the minority of it, and it's just been divided a bit more equally and yet there's still, sorry, white men, but there's still a majority yeah, of white yeah, men and everyone else is, is losing is, out or winning a tiny bit. This is how they get us. This is how like the patriarchy get us. This is how <laughs> it carries on going. Yeah. Because I don't know about you, but I feel like we are in tough times, but the general march of humanity is marching forward and we have a blip right now, but you know, we do have yeah. more, um, you know, non-white people on TV. Yeah, we have more yeah. gay representation, which has been amazing for me as a gay woman. But yeah. we end up fighting ourselves amongst, ourselves amongst ourselves. So there's a big thing at the moment in the feminist community about trans women and cis women. And they just seem to be fighting for this one slice of the pie yeah. that exists. It's almost like, here's your diversity slice of pie. Yeah. And you can split that up. And until now, diversity meant black men and a few uh, white women and maybe the odd black woman who I know a lot of my black friends say it used to be the paler the better which is just sickening in its own yeah, way yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and now we're trying to say you know you're doing great work knocking on the door saying listen to us but instead of that slice of the pie getting bigger the more people and more diverse groups included it's staying the same slice, but we're forcing everybody to have smaller chunks of it. And then it and just becomes divide and conquer because we're fighting amongst ourselves. You've got everyone making all this noise and it's not going high up yeah. enough most of the time. And the other thing is, 
I mean, I'd love to hear your opinion on this because I don't yeah. feel like I'm qualified to speak, but I'm just going to say the thing yeah. that I'm not supposed to say, is that I feel like I want us to support each other more and yeah. be allies around yeah. the table and kind of, colleague called it the uh, oppression Olympics. Yeah. You know, you want to be able to talk to your friends about it and say, hey, I'm having a hard time, I didn't get that audition and I'm feeling rough. You don't want someone to turn around and go, well, you have it easier than me, so you're not allowed to complain. Yeah. But at the same at time, the same time, my biggest thing at the moment is so many white men going on about how hard it is to be a white man. Now, <laughs> white men go through hard times. That's categorically not something I'd argue. Mm. Do white men go through hard times because of them being white male? No. And that becomes no. a separate yeah. Olympics. But something similar happened recently where Lynn Gardner, who for listeners who don't know, is an amazing theatre journalist yeah. and reviewer, but more than just a reviewer, she has kind of opened up the discussion about not just diversity of race or gender, but also of age and also where in the UK you go and see, because theatre is very London-centric. Yeah. Um, she hasn't had her contract renewed with The Guardian, and there was this really lame excuse that it was yeah. for diversity. And what I find interesting is a lot of minority groups have stuck up for her. Lynn is a white woman. Yeah. Um, I would say probably like middle-aged white woman, quite middle-class now, I suppose. But um, she's been a champion of diversity. How do you feel as... They, I think that what they said was we're going to bring in new voices. So we don't know what that means yet. Um, the thing with Lynn was back in 2012, we, we, we did the RSC orphanage our protest. Can you explain a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, the Royal Shakespeare Company did a Chinese play called The Orphanage Owl, which they call the Chinese Hamlet, but I think that's just because the stage is filled with dead bodies at the end. I don't think it's really got anything to do with Hamlet. It's a famous UN drama, which has been done lots of times. You know, 16 people in it, and uh, only three of them restaged, and they're very young. Set in China. Yeah, clearly so. I mean, look, look, let's just be absolutely clear. I have no problem if you do the orphanage out and you, you set it in Peckham and you call the characters Bill and Rufus or whatever, you know, I don't... But when you when you keep it in China and you wear those costumes and you have characters called, you know, um, Huang Ge and... It, it's, it's oh, just, it makes me feel so awkward, my little PC well, brain. The positive thing about it is it looks kind of weird now. It's, an, it's, it's like an anachronism. And, you know, I just want to say this. They, they more than made amends. You know, last year they did, mm. they did a play called Snow in Summer, which I was in. There was 13 of us on the Swan stage playing to 500 people every night who absolutely loved it. So, so they kind of listened. And it was all a fully staging cut. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. there was a certain theatre, I think maybe a year ago, a year, room, who yeah. didn't apologise. The print rooms, no, they apologize. didn't recast, they didn't do anything. You uh, ran a protest, didn't you? I was there. Uh, yeah, well, we're talking about white men, so let's give one credit, Andrew Keats, you know, as a theatre director, who kind of more or less kind of stuck his neck out and organised that. I, you know, I'm always a bit wary about standing outside theatres, you know, on, on press night, but we did do it. It was a momentous evening, I have to say, probably one of the most exciting nights of my life, and uh, got a bit hairy. But, you know, it's things like that, when you grow old, you look back on those things, you remember them, I think. You know, it's kind of incredible. I want to try and it do worked. it again. Yeah. It, I it, went to see it. Yeah. I hated to add, I went to see it on a ticket that I did not have to pay for yeah. because I was not going to pay for it. Yeah. It was rubbish. It yeah, was always going to yeah. be rubbish. And then yeah, at a certain point, it got so sexist as well as racist yeah. that me and my partner stood up and left. And you went. <laughs> I think it's rude to do that when an actor can easily see you, but it was one of those points where we were like... You just, I, we, I, can't, I yeah. can't deal with this um, anymore. 
you get a lot of flack online for this stuff. And you get people going, have you seen the play? And I'm like, I'm not, I'm to. not going to waste my, I did read it. I did read it. And I, it's not one of Howard's best, and it's, let's just say that. But so going back, so it looked like an anachronism because before that in 2012, we'd had this probably historic protest. I think in years to come, we look back, you know, it was unprecedented. I, I think. agree. Don't think anyone, you know, the orphanage house, certainly no one had ever done anything like that before. It was extraordinary. And in, in, in many ways, the whole kind of diversity thing in theatres kind of come out of that. But it was interesting. And, and I was kind of like at the centre of it. And I, I said, look, look, I've got one goal with this. I just want to get every single theatre critic to mention this. Hmm. in their reviews because it's happened before you know no one even noticed no one even considered the little yellow people who weren't there as far as we're just invisible we don't exist so i want every single theater critic to mention it and i was obviously because all the theater critics that time the established ones were very very white very middle class very middle-aged and they're obviously quite disparaging about that protest and i think there were two critics who got it really one of them was Natasha Tripney at the stage who wrote an amazing review of The Orphan and Jail where she kind of like put it all into context and said it's nicely done and everything but it's anachronistic because that in 2012 is odd. And the other one who really got it but she didn't review the play but in terms of <coughs> responding to that protest and in terms of giving us the platform, writing about us, taking an interest, continually mentioning it was Lynn Gardner because mm. I think she... You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know her really well. I, I, I see her to say hello to her. You know, and that night in the print room, it's like I wrote that when, when we found out that her um, contract wasn't getting renewed, I kind of wrote that as my, like, my favourite memory of Lynn really was being stood outside the print room in the freezing cold, you know, perishing that night. And she was going in to watch, and she stopped and said hello to me, and we had a little chat for a few minutes, and she said, "Oh, you've got a really good turnout here. It's great." And um, I just thought that she, she's a kind of extraordinary person in that way, and that I, it, it's not. I've seen people writing about, oh, Lynn understood my work in a way nobody else did. I wouldn't say that, you know. One of the things I'm most disappointed, I, I, I wrote a play in 2013 called The Fu Manchu Complex and it went on the Oval House and the mainstream critics weren't very nice about it because I think maybe their own left, white, liberal racism was triggered perhaps. But one of the disappointing things that happened was, was Lynn was supposed to come and review it and, and she couldn't go because Michael Bennett was sick so she, she, she had to go to the National Theatre and they sent another critic called Maddie Costa to see it. And look, look I'm, I'm sure maybe Lynn would have thought it was crap as well. I'm not, you know, I, maybe it is crap. I don't know. But I think Lynn would have not got it in a different way to the way Maddie Costa didn't <laughs> get it. I think, and I said this, I said, you know, a bad review of Lynn kind of exhorts you to be better, whereas a bad review of some critics just feels like they're saying, get back in your box, you scruffy, uneducated little peasant. And it's a, it's a real class thing as well, I think. It's, you know, there's a race aspect to it, obviously, but there's a real class Thing about I think it. it's class just, is something that we really, really need to talk about more in this country. Well, especially in the theatre. It's yeah. a hallowed, middle-class, Oxbridge-educated haven. And in a way, I kind of understand why, because it's all about reading, it's all about, it's about knowledge of drama, literature and all this kind of stuff, but it's quite... It's quite elitist and, and quite it's nasty. And we've completely misunderstood, for example, like Shakespeare. Can you think of something more? I mean, I like Shakespeare and I think there's some great yeah. Shakespeare going on at the moment. She's looking at me like I'm going to kill her. Oh, no. I mean, I'm literally um, assisted directing a Shakespeare at the moment. And yeah. I saw Julius Caesar at the bridge recently, which was very different and very yeah, in your yeah, face. Yeah, yeah. But if you think of the most stuffy theatre piece you possibly can, it's probably somebody doing a soliloquy a really boring Richard III. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. But that's so silly because Shakespeare was hugely popular well, and was there for all the kind of peasants at the time. So how has it become 
this what? thing where only middle class people can enjoy it. I, I, I hate to uh, to geek out about this, but <laughs> the Globe is probably the only, or was, the only building where people of all walks of yeah, society yeah, yeah, could come together that. and share ideas that and stories. And there's something really amazing about that. And everyone yeah. thinks they own Shakespeare. You're right. I mean, I did a Christopher Marlowe play last year at the RSC. So I read a lot about the period and about how the public playhouses at that time, they were not hallowed middle-class spaces at all. They were like dens of iniquity. They were more like, more like raves now, you know? Yeah, I mean, they were bands. They were bands. Thrown out of Shoreditch, chucked you know, on the South Bank yeah, with yeah, brothels. Yeah. It, 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 really, it was popular entertainment, and it's become this thing now, and you are dismissed. But, you know, in terms of criticism, there, there definitely is that feeling. I, I was at an Act for Change event last year where which was about theatre criticism, and Lynn was talking, she said, like, I don't, I don't consider myself a gatekeeper which I thought was, you know, an extraordinarily humble thing to say, because I think a lot of them do see themselves as gatekeepers. There's a certain boring old white man reviewer for a certain major newspaper who I literally know, if he's given it a one or a two star, it's probably got, for him, too many non-white yeah, people yeah, in yeah, it, yeah, yeah. and it's probably politically not what him and his paper want. So I think there's people who are accidental gatekeepers who just don't check their privilege and no, think no, that no. they are objective when none of us are. No, 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 And then there totally. are people who actively are like, I am gatekeeping because, heaven forbid, people see Hamilton with a bunch of non-white people on stage and connect to it. Well, yeah, yeah, and, and also just makes a mockery of that whole idea about the fact that Poetry is this kind of like um, higher art form that comes from educated white people. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, you, you got on the bus, you listen to black kids talking to each other. There's poetry in their vernacular, the way they speak, you know, the, the kind of riffs they do on language is extraordinary. Do you know what I mean? You, you want to kind of bottle it and use it. You go on the house estate, they, they just make up raps and stuff. They're incredible. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's untapped. And common Chinese people, they're very, very poetic in the, in the way they talk. And th there is all that. And, and, you know, I think Lynn was different from that and um, I think the Guardian have made a strange move I have to say I'd be interested to see who they replace her with because if they replace her with a, with, with a white middle class male I think that's not going to go down very well I can't something. see how they could no. I suppose the only good thing that could come of this is they make a good decision afterwards and Lynn has so much support that People will go to Lynn because she's... Oh, no, they don't. She's not finished by a long way and she'll always be around. She'll always be a voice. I mean, I mean, if they replace her with someone like Bridget Minimore, I think it is, who's a black woman, you know, I... I but um, some people think it's cost-cutting, so maybe they're actually replacing her with nobody apart from one freelancer every now and then. So that's their idea and new voices. I, I don't know. So how can we be good allies? As white people, yeah. not just me and Holly. <laughs> white people listening, this well. is on you too. Yeah. And is it okay to try and fail? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I would hope everyone can fail. I mean, we live in quite an unforgiving environment where you make one mistake online and you, you will get toasted forever, unfortunately. Look, as you're both women, you kind of do get this. I mean, I was going to say that about the orphanage our pros and Natasha Tripney got it, Lynn Gardner got it. What do they have that those white metal critics didn't have. They're both women and they both understand discrimination, which I think white middle-class men of a certain age, I don't think they believe in that concept. It's hard to accept. Well, it's, it? it's slightly changed now. Um, I found like, particularly over like Twitter discourse, people used to tell me sexism doesn't exist. Yeah, now since no. Donald Trump, that is slow down. They then come up with another excuse. People said racism doesn't exist. Well, after Brexit, they were like, oh, but it is this idea that because I don't see it, it doesn't exist. But say there's some 
very wonderful 45 year old straight white male who works in the city yeah who isn't in theater didn't realize that apu was racist from the simpsons yeah what would you say to him about embracing the diversity rather than thinking it's and make him no. do the work as well that's the other well, thing well yeah i'm quite keen on making people do the work i mean i often get asked like when you're protesting against yellow face at the print room where what you often get online is so so where's the line daniel i mean you know if i'm doing Macbeth, do i have to cast all scotch people well, I mean, you know, you have to work that out for yourself. You have to kind of like, you know, so what, what, do you want to make rules? No, I don't want to make rules, actually. But what I, what I would support, being able to say to someone, you need to check yourself there because yeah. there's a mistake. Someone hasn't corrected you before. I'm yeah. correcting you and telling you that what you're saying is problematic. Go and read something. Yeah. All right, so here's, Look it up on, here's on something Google. that we can say to Roger, the 45-year-old white man in the city, you're going to make mistakes, but when somebody pulls you up on it, you will get defensive. We all do. Yeah. But when you get defensive, take a step back, go, why am I getting defensive? And there will be some times where it has been a misunderstanding, but a lot of the time you will take a step back and go, oh, I never thought about that. Dear white people, <laughs> don't be so defensive. Yeah. I am a big fan of the podcast, The Hilo. Shout out to Hilo, Dolly and Pandora, you're amazing. Um, but they have been talking about a man called Neville Southall. Neville Southall. Southall, okay. Oh, yeah, Everton and goalkeeper, yeah. So He's one of the most woke men in the planet. Yeah. Right? The gay rights and everything. There was a wonderful article about how you kind of reach a certain age and you kind of shut up shop oh, and yeah, you no. don't want to learn anymore. And let's all be a bit more Neville because he's making mistakes and he's asking stupid questions. But in turn, he's going on his own journey. He's reaching the right conclusions, maybe slower than other people have. Mm. And that's okay. And also, he's got a massive platform and he gives up his Twitter for a day, uh, there was a doctor who's obviously talking about the NHS a lot, and he just gave up his Twitter for a day. She did a Twitter takeover. You know, nobody's telling white men to give up their job and their seat at the table, but there are moments where you can there, elevate other people. There's a lot of them. I mean, there's a few of them. I mean, there's Brian Moore, who's a rugby player as well. He's absolutely, his Twitter's absolutely fantastic. Well, I recommend you have a read it. The other one, there's an actor called Jason Isaacs, and I didn't expect this. You look yeah. at his Twitter feed, he just gets trolled by kind of right-wing nuts all the time, and he wow. just totally deals with it. There's a book I read called, um, it's, it's about uh, Memories of White Racists or something. title comes that the images of skinhead fascist boot boys, but it's actually about societal structural racism in America. The guy who's a sociologist talks about the fact that white people must get used to the idea that they're just another ethnic group rather than mm -hmm. being the norm. Yeah just as much the paint as everybody yeah. else but we think we're the camps yeah. but there is this thing which which the far right have they think they're being replaced you know they think it's all it's all a, a loss of a, good luck, a loss mate. of privilege yeah. feels yeah. like <laughs> oppression yeah no no completely they're convinced that europe's white population is being replaced which i don't the see. word genocide yeah the, yeah it does which get, is yeah, white so genocide. gross because I there know. are genuine genocides going on right yeah. now in certain muslim yeah, no, there populations are, there are there really are and it's not, I don't see white people getting extinct. I'm not soon. scared. No, I'm not no, scared. I don't you should be either. No. <laughs> Do you want to read so, your quote, Holly? Yeah. Um, Daniel is also a writer. Also a writer. And there's a fantastic book called The Good Immigrant, which came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. I've got a copy here in hardback. And it's a series of short essays and stories by contributors who come from immigrant families. Yeah. Are they pretty much all from the UK? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I moved to Rockwonga, lives in lives in Germany, I think. But yeah, they're all they're all coming from a UK place. Yeah. All coming from a UK background, and yeah, it's such a great book. Sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And Daniel wrote one called Kendo Nagasaki and Me about representation on TV. But there's this great bit right at the beginning where you go back to your childhood in yeah. 70s Great Britain. Yeah. Um, a place that many believe was a land of joyous liberty before yeah. the totalitarian oppression of the political correctness brigade, welcome me and Kate, committed the heinous Stalinist crime of actually making it a bit difficult yeah. to take the piss out of ethnic minorities, gay or disabled people, and who only ever regard women as either battle axes or sex objects. So I'm, I'm a gay woman. Yeah. I am constantly told... PC gone mad. Even a single gay person on a sitcom, PC gone mad. And I'm so sick of people telling me that the acknowledgement of the existence of my reality is PC gone mad. Oh, it's PC gone mad because these people don't exist, but we do exist. I mean, do you find that that happens when you talk about representation of East Asian oh yeah, all the and time. Yeah. What do you say to that? Do you have like two sentences that just, you give back, or is it just, more of a dialogue? Just, just two. Or a paragraph. It's, just that we can work with next well, time it happens to us, basically. Well, there's a thing here. They're, they're dying to put you in a box where you're you're the person that makes boring rules for them. You know, you're the PC fascist who's going to make it illegal for them to take the piss out of people in wheelchairs and gay people. And I, actually, there's there's no rules about that. I mean, people think that about like a white man playing Othello they think, oh yeah it's not allowed anymore it's absolutely allowed you can do it but we're allowed yeah. to tell you that you're racist yeah, yeah, we're allowed, allowed to, to completely frown Sargon of what's his name was on uh, I saw this YouTube thing where he was talking about that. you know that was that guy the other day in the um he went in the New York deli and he got upset because two of the workers were talking Spanish to each other and he, and he threatened to call the immigration authority. Heaven forbid. It went viral, it went viral and all of the planet. Anyway, the guy's famous now for all the wrong reasons, you know, and he's issued an apology and all this. And Sargon's there going, well, what's he said? I mean, all right, he's an arsehole, I get it, but surely the English language, for social cohesion, you should have a national language. So, so let me get this straight. You, who were on that free speech march the other day, hmm. actually want to stop Spanish people talking to each other in Spanish. That's how ludicrous it gets. It's free speech as long as it's my No, no, no. It, it, it's, just, it's just absolutely ridiculous. I just can't even... It's the idea on that the everybody side. has an agenda, but nobody's talking about the fact that straight people have an agenda. No. I don't have an agenda, actually. I mean, I do now because I have to, because my sexuality is political because of yeah. the time and place and space I exist in. But well, you have an agenda. A meeting has an agenda. Nobody gets anything done if you yeah, don't have yeah, an agenda. Yeah, yeah. But it's what you were saying about white people thinking they are the base the rest of the world revolves around. There is no such thing as a straight agenda. Cause that's just, yeah, that's the norm, yeah. On the flip side of this. Oh, God. No, no, don't worry. Um, on the flip side of this, I have a friend who manages a restaurant, pizza restaurant, and she got an email the other day from a white man, absolutely up in arms. I love this story. He'd been into the restaurant and yeah. he was furious that all of the people on the floor were women, all of the people in the kitchen were men, and it's a sexist restaurant. Yeah, My manager friend, yeah. who is a woman, sent one back saying, I am a feminist. You just came on a night where there just happened to be those staff available. Yeah. But like, hats off to that guy. If you are this guy, please <laughs> send us a tweet. I love the fact that this like middle-aged, middle-class guy walks into a restaurant, has seen 
something that I don't think most people see. I don't think mm. even sometimes I see that stuff. And it's got outraged of Tunbridge Wells, I'm going to be, and then must be so embarrassed about it because they got it wrong. So I guess that's what we're saying about being better allies as people who are woke. We need to be better. If somebody is genuinely trying, don't destroy their life because they were just got it wrong. No, no, but that, there's something you just said then which made me think as well though about that whole thing about PC gone mad and people think you're restricting things and actually you're doing the opposite because you're Jodie Whittaker as Doctor Who. Mm. It's interesting now you see because I They'll call it PC Gone Mad. I think it's probably quite a smart move, actually, mm -hmm. because that franchise has been running now. They bought it back very successfully, and it's, the ratings were going down quite a lot. They've moved at different ah, time slots and all this kind I of didn't stuff. I know that. I think they've given the thing a massive reboot. That option's now available to them. I grew up watching Doctor Who, do you know what I mean? I, I can quote whole episodes to you from the 70s and 80s. I'm kind of a Doctor Who expert, much to my shame and embarrassment, <laughs> to be honest, you know. I'm the same with Buffy. Yeah, I'm, yeah me I'm, too, Buffy. Yeah, all I'm, the way. I'm sure I could have, you know spent my youth doing more productive things but that option wouldn't have been available to them then it's available now and so so she's going she's gonna be a massive success it's gonna reboot the whole thing so now that that role one of the most iconic on british television is kind of up for grabs now yeah it's amazing yeah each time the doctor regenerates they change pretty much everything about the movie yeah. it's apart not... from their skin color and their gender well, yeah here's the thing <laughs> it's not that the doctor is a woman now because it's pc <laughs> gone mad and they're trying to tokenize the reason the Doctor hasn't been a woman before is sexism. Of course or, it is, yeah. Um, so, it, actually, the Doctor, by its own law that it's created, should have been a woman and different races years ago. Yeah. So, that's so much more positive for me. Yeah. And I think we can end that on a mm. decent note. We like to end the podcast with two little questions. When, if ever, do you switch off your activism? <laughs> I mean, my, Nika Shukla, who edited this book, did this incredible thing where he tweeted the other week, I'm going on holiday, so for the next two weeks you're going to have to imagine me here talking about racism and stuff all day. This there. <laughs> I'm sort of with you, I think, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah. And then the second question is, in these dark, dark times... Daniel York, give us some sunshine. A specific example. Do you think we're winning this war? You think I think in our industry, in our industry, we kind of are. And in London, I think we are. People from different cultures can live together well. They, they, they definitely do, and, 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 and the far right want to tell you that doesn't happen. It, it's, it clearly does. It clearly does happen. And, um, and it works. Well, someone, someone tweeted a picture of the, the Royal Wedding. There were, there, were, there were three Muslim women with hijabs on, but they had Union Jack hijabs on. And so I tried telling these three women they're not, they're not British. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I did actually. Okay, I'll be, I'll be honest. I didn't watch it. I watched the news after. So I did think the Royal Wedding was quite an extraordinary thing. I'm not into the monarchy. I think it's a waste of taxpayers' money, all that privilege. But that royal wedding was quite extraordinary, actually. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, and that shot of her in her dress and behind us, that little boy grinning his chops off, little white royal boy and her mixed race black. To, I mean, that was an extraordinary image. There's something very powerful and kind of wonderful about that. Times they are a-changing. Yeah. So, Daniel, where can we find you? You're on Twitter at... Daniel F. York. So follow him on Twitter. You also do a lot with equity, don't you? Yeah, I'm the chair of the Minority Ethnic Members Committee. There you go. So any actors yeah. who want to get in touch. Kate, what's your um, Twitter? Kate Lois Elliott, two L's, two T's. You can find me at our Team Q, our as in me, you and all of us. Team as in still keep on supporting Arsenal and Q as in... Uh, what the fuck is she going on about? Uh, you can find the podcast on Twitter at DiversifyPod or the hashtag DiversifyPod or we're on Instagram as DiversifyPodcast. 
because apparently I've been told that Instagram people like longer things. There. And Twitter people apparently like shorter things there. <laughs> Which says a lot about the state of Twitter. Um, yes, so thank you for tuning in again, everybody. Tweet us, send us pictures on Instagram. God, I work in social media, I should know more. Thank you for listening and thank you, Daniel. It's been oh, no, thank, no, thank you. I could have gone all right, thank you. <laughs>